0: Welcome to the Business of Security podcast brought to you by TrustMap for Security Performance Management. Your host is Josh Bruning, Cybersecurity Solutions Engineer with TrustMap. Today he talks with Nick Means, VP of Engineering at Sim. Now let's get to it. start talking about that we're not doing today.
1: Information technology is built on a horrible foundation. If we could sort of redo and start from the beginning, we would be so much better off. If you
0: don't invest in it and keep it running, it will blow up. But you also have to be able to go in with solutions, not just problems. We have a long way to
1: go if we're going to win
2: this fight. At the end of the day, educated people are really the best countermeasure against all the threats, the threats, the threats, the threats, the
1: threats. Welcome to the Business of Security podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bruning, and today... I'm here with Nicholas Means, a.k.a. Nick Means. Nick is the VP of Engineering at Sim, the adaptive access tool built for developers. He's been an engineering leader for more than a decade, focused on helping teams build velocity through trust and autonomy. He's also a regular speaker at conferences around the world, teaching more effective software development practices through stories of real-world engineering triumphs and failures. Nick, welcome to the Business of Security podcast. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me on, Josh.
1: So let's let's crack open the day in the life of Nick, right? I know that you guys over at Sim are doing some great things, and we'll cover a lot of that in today's episode. Uh, really focusing on how teams can uh, continuously improve processes to reduce the impact of a breach and that's what you're all about over at sim before we get into the questions could you give us an idea of what the daily life is like over there at sim
2: yeah for sure so my my role at sim is VP of engineering uh, and in a, an earlier stage startup that generally means you wear all of the engineering leadership hats from line management all the way up through VP of engineering so it's it's a pretty broad scope and a pretty big scope of things that I need to think about on, uh, on an ongoing basis. Everything from doing one-on-ones with our engineering team, focusing on career development with them, up to technology strategy. What are, what are the things that we need to change about our, our platform and our product to support the direction that we want to go with it as a business, uh, including other things around security, making sure we're building a secure product, making sure our infrastructure is secure, um, and, and even you know because I have been an engineering leader and we're building a product focused on essentially engineering leaders as one of the core buyers of the product, I get to step in and pretend I'm the buyer sometimes as well and and try to put that that hat on to help inform what we're building as a product. Um, so kind of all of those things, and it just depends day by day what what my focus is and and what the most important thing is that particular day.
1: What does the average customer look like? The average user? Of this product looks like. Could you give us a, a brief rundown of what that profile would be?
2: So that's been an, actually a really interesting question for us to answer internally as a business, um, because a lot of the normal uh, demographic information that, that you would use to to figure out who your ideal customer is doesn't really a product uh, apply to a product like Sem. You know, we have small teams using it all the way up to to larger uh, small enterprise teams using it. Um, a lot of it depends on what a team's orientation towards security is, how proactive they're being about security, um, how focused they are on, on locking their access down to the, the the things that they need to do their job and how much they care about being able to to do that in a quick way to ensure their engineering teams have velocity while they're also locking it down. I um, mean, you know, it's tough, sort of the, the maturity model of access control. And when you're building a business, a lot of companies start Everybody has admin access, and, and you hang on to that for a long time just because it's a really pragmatic way to get a bunch of software out the door early on. Um, and then at some point, there comes a reckoning where you have to do something about that because you you can't operate that way indefinitely. It's not safe. It's not secure. And so our ideal customer is the customer that's kind of at that spot where they're they're going, okay, we've got to lock this down. We've got to have better access controls in place. And we don't want to sacrifice any velocity of our engineering team in the process of doing that. So it just depends on where in the life of their business they they kind of hit that that spot in the road.
1: In today's security landscape, we find that instead of pointing fingers at people, companies are increasingly pointing fingers at systems. This may be a good or a bad thing, and we can get into that. It's, it's easier to keep systems more accountable than people or maybe vice versa. We don't know. That's what we're here to find out um, and here to discuss. So what can we do to continuously improve processes to reduce the impact of a breach, given that companies are pointing the finger at the systems rather than the people?
2: I mean, I think it would be good for us to start by talking about the first half of that statement a little bit. Rather, rather it's a good thing for them to be pointing fingers at systems versus pointing things at pointing fingers at people. I'm a pretty big I pretty big advocate for blameless culture. Um so the idea that pointing fingers at people is largely counterproductive. There, there's a bunch of reasons that I think that's true. Um, but one of the ones that I always fall back to is this idea of the the, the no bad apples. Um, it's a concept from Sidney Decker. And it's the idea that nobody comes to work wanting to do a bad job. Nobody comes to work deciding, okay, today's the day that I'm gonna cause a security incident for my company. Um, so so the idea that that someone comes and decides to to be problematic on a given day I'm sure there are people out there that have caused breaches intentionally and have benefited from them, but it's such a small proportion of breaches that it's almost not even worth talking about. So if we kind of put that column to the side and we think about everybody else in the business who who might be accidentally leaving a door open or accidentally leaving a loophole in code that allows somebody to access a system inappropriately, blaming them, pointing the finger at them, holding them accountable for something they didn't do intentionally in the first place. And that probably made sense to them at the time that they did it. Or at least they didn't have the context to understand why it was a bad idea is not really a helpful thing to do because it it essentially makes everybody in a business scared to admit when there's a problem. It encourages the idea of sweeping things under the rug, right? So if you accidentally say you accidentally click on a, a phishing email, you enter username and password, you can do one of two things. Uh, you can either change your passwords in a hurry and hope you did it quick enough. Or you can reach out to the security team who can help you make sure your account is secure, monitor your account for unauthorized access, all of that sort of thing. We obviously want the second thing to happen. We want you to reach out to the security team. But if you're afraid that you're going to get in trouble for clicking that phishing email, if you're afraid that there's going to be blame that lands on your shoulders from doing that, then you might have the instinct to do the first thing instead. You might try to cover it up instead. Um, so I think by and large, it's a good thing that we're, we're moving towards a culture where we are largely blaming systems and not people when a security breach occurs, and I do see that happening in the market. Uh, you know, if you look at the the drop the Dropbox breach or the CircleCI breach that happened uh, late last year, early this year, um, the posts that they put out were very not focused on individual blame. I think. Dropbox, the Dropbox one worded it, something like a phishing campaign eventually succeeded. And then I think the CircleCI breach was something along the lines of like an unauthorized party leveraged malware on a CircleCI engineer's laptop or something like that. If you compare that to like the Equifax breach from 2017, uh, the CEO of Equifax pretty clearly put that, that breach on the shoulders of the person inside Equifax that was responsible for patch management. So I think there's a very clear trend to to improving the maturity of that in the industry. And I think, that's, I think it's a good thing.
1: Let's crack that open a little bit more. So on the, let's call it the people front, regarding the people in the organization, it seems like it's a little bit, not just a technical problem, but maybe a little bit of a moral dilemma, uh, a behavior-focused or a psychology-focused approach to not point the finger at the person who clicked on the phishing email. And that makes total sense. Is there any room at all to point the finger to the security leader? Or uh, are we exclusively looking at the technical portions of the system? And I suppose we could sum this question up in one way. What is included and who are included in the systems? And if, if, if there are people included in the system that might deserve any kind of finger pointing, who might that
2: be? I mean, that's a great question, Josh. I think at the end of the day, leaders of organizations have to take accountability for the things that happen in their organizations. Is that the CEO? Is it the security leader? Is it the engineering leader? Um, is it all of them? It just depends. It depends on the scope of the breach, how big the breach is. Internally, uh, w- what you want to happen after, after something like that happens is you want the organization's focus to be on learning. You want the organization's focus to be on what can we do better? How can we improve? How can we make sure this doesn't happen again? That's Easier to do when it's something like a phishing campaign or malware or something like that. Uh, it's a little harder to do in the Equifax case, for example, when obviously their patch management wasn't up to snuff. Like you go and look at their patch management protocols after the breach, and they were lagging on all of their patches, not just this one particular patch. Um, you know, the Circle CI breach, if they're if they're not running endpoint security on their machines. Uh, if they're not paying attention, if they're not updating those profiles to catch malware, if it happens to get installed, that's one thing. Uh, but if they are, and this just happens to be a zero-day exploit or something like that, then it's a little tougher to to cast blame at the top of the organization. So I think there's a component of almost negligence that we have to look at. Are you being responsible in managing the security of an organization? Are you doing all of the things that you can reasonably do given the the threat that that you're trying to protect against? Have you done threat modeling to even understand what those threats are and who might be trying to attack you?
1: So even when due care is not an issue, we are well aware of this at this point in, in in the security landscape. Even when we perform due care and due diligence and we do everything we're supposed to do, things go wrong. All right. So let's say if I'm hearing you correctly, we're defining the system sort of as leaning more towards the, the, the technical side with the human's pulling the levers, right? But it's, I just want to clarify, what what do we mean by the system before we talk about improving the system?
2: Yeah, so I, I would use the word sociotechnical to describe the system. And the reason I use that word is because it almost never makes economic system, economic system. It almost never makes economic sense to make a system resilient on its own. That's a very, very expensive thing to do. And so you're almost always beholden to the humans that are involved in the system as well to make the system resilient to anything that might happen within it. And so when I use the term system, it is that socio-technical system. It's the computer systems, the technology systems, and the humans that are operating them, uh, hopefully working together in concert.
1: Okay. So what do we do to continuously improve? How do we improve the maturity of the system such that we reduce the impact of a breach that inevitably will occur?
2: That's a great question. You know, the, the first thing I'll say is it goes back to that blameless culture. You need to build that blameless culture a long time before you need it um, so that that engineers do reach out to security, reach out to their managers when when something goes wrong, when when there is a security breach that they noticed or when there's a mistake that they made. Um, you want that information to bubble up to people in the organization that can help solve it instead of somebody trying to solve it on their own. Um, so that's sort of the, the socio side of the socio-technical system. Um, more on the technical side, you know, it's the, the sort of due diligence things that we we already think about a lot, like endpoint protection, making sure firewalls are up to date, all of the technical pieces are in place, uh, but also uh, reducing the default access of, of everybody in the organization so that when somebody does get their hands on one of your keys, the things that they can do with that key are limited. Um, either it's time bound and it expires or it's scope bound or hopefully both so that, yeah, maybe they have... A short amount of time where they do have some access to your system that they shouldn't have, but it's short enough that they're not able to find a way to prolong that access or, or, or to continue accessing your system after that key is expired. What is access as code? So, there's a bunch of different ways that you can define access in an organization. Um, you know, at the at, at the basic, you're, you're clicking and creating user accounts and a bunch of different a bunch of different pieces of software. Uh, maybe you're using a tool like Okta or, or Google to do SSO. Uh, maybe you're using an enterprise directory to grant access. The idea of access as code is, is sort of it's akin to the idea of infrastructure as code. Whatever way you're managing access, it, it's you're controlling that access through writing code, both to grant that access and to manage the ongoing escalation and de-escalation when somebody's access changes. Because uh, that's, you know, it's one of the things when you think about access in an organization. You give everybody the access that they need, but that's really not the end of it uh, because access needs in an organization are dynamic. They change day by day, depending on what you need to do that day, um, depending on what systems you need access to, to do that, depending on what SaaS tools it makes sense for the company to pay for or not pay for for your particular account. Maybe you need access to Figma for a couple of months because you're in the middle of a design effort on something, but they don't, the the company doesn't need to pay for that on an ongoing basis. Um, there's a bunch of different ways that access shifts around. And it's easy to lose control of it. Uh, the same the same way you can lose control of your infrastructure if you're just clicking around in the AWS console to to create servers and things like that. It's pretty easy for that to get out of control and you do not really know what service corresponds with what instance. Um, and that's really the roots of where infrastructure as code came from in the first place is to give us better control over that. Uh, infrastructure as code is sort of the same, same kind of concept.
1: And having infrastructure as code or access as code, does that in any way reduce the impact of a breach or reduce the likelihood of a breach, such that, you know, looking at it through the lens or the prism of the system, that uh, techno-social system, this being more the technical part of it, what does access as code do to reduce the likelihood of that sort of incident?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for starters, when you have better control over access across your organization, you know what people have access to what things, um, it makes it easier to go through and audit that on a regular basis and make sure you're not leaving hanging access where you don't need it. Um, but the more interesting thing, and the thing that we're focused on at Sim is sort of the time bound piece there, the just in time access, um, where you know you can define a workflow, somebody can go and post in a Slack channel, hey, I need access to production to do this thing. One of their peers on the engineering team can peer approve that access. And then it's automatically provisioned for them. Uh, and then an hour, four hours, whatever duration they requested later it's automatically deprovisioned for them. So they don't end up carrying around administrative access that they don't need indefinitely.
1: So when we go down to the code level, instead of having to, you know, some tools might not have that feature built in. You're basically, you can create any features to suit the environment or the the job of the person who needs access. And you can really do that on the fly. And your your point is that kind of reduces the likelihood of let's say we forgot to turn that switch off. We gave them access. And now we, you know, somebody forgot to turn it or The tool that we're using doesn't automatically shut off access after four hours or so you can basically set those parameters. And if I can summarize what you're saying, you're saying that access as code allows the team, the engineering team to basically respond dynamically to
2: the needs of the users. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. The, The one thing that I would say is that it actually changes from being on the fly to being more considered. Um, because if if you're in a situation where somebody needs access to a system and they're just posting in, in an IT channel, hey, I need access to get into this part of our AWS infrastructure, uh, somebody who may or may not have the context to decide if that access request is appropriate might be making that decision. Whereas if you're doing it in infrastructure as code, if you're declaring these workflows up front, you're taking the time to make these decisions before you're in the moment, before somebody's actively asking for for that access. Um, one of the, one of the things that lets you do is add additional context to those access requests. Um, so for example, uh, the, the production infrastructure workflow that we've got at SIM that we use for our, our own infrastructure, we'll take a look at PagerDuty. And if, if you're on call in PagerDuty and there's an actively paged incident, you can self-provision production access so you can get in and start troubleshooting that system without waking anybody else up in the middle of the night or waiting on somebody else to get online. And that's the decision that that we made because we're a fairly small team. That's a risk that that makes sense for us to take. It's a risk that makes sense for us to trade off in order to have faster responses to incidents when somebody's waking up in the middle of the night. And it's one less thing for that engineer who might be responding to worry about um, when, when they're already kind of sleepy and trying to get their heads around what's going on in an incident. But we were able to make that decision in the middle of a workday in a very calm conversation because we were talking about how do we build this workflow, not in, in the heat of the moment, in the heat of an incident.
1: Are you aware of any frameworks out there that support this level of? I'm going to say this level of maturity for access control. And do you do you know of any frameworks that explicitly call for access as code?
2: I don't. I mean, there there are other some of our competitors provide similar time-bound access, but I'm as far as I'm aware of, we are the only ones that are explicitly defining that access as code, where you can check it into your source control management where. Where you can manage it via your regular software development lifecycle, um, so you sort of get change management baked in versus having to layer it on top of like a, a point and click UI SaaS tool or something like that.
1: So what you're saying, Nick, is that you're ahead of your time. We hope so. Yeah, no, this is I. It, it's a really cool. It's a really cool tool. And uh, let's go down the line: Nest, CIS, ISO, SOC, AICPA. If you guys are listening, put this on the list. You know, this is, I think this is, this is really increase. It's not just about a technical control or, you know, creating uh, the maturity in a technical space, but I really like the holistic approach that you've taken to make it safer with the techno social aspect or including people in, in that system and not pointing fingers to the people uh, at the people, but. Uh, really pointing fingers at the entire system and including yourself in that system. Uh, I think that that should be considered in maturity and it really should be something that's considered in compliance as well. So um, the sooner that we see these and in, in rolled out in frameworks, that would be great. Um, you guys would just be the only players in town. So, okay, from your perspective as an engineering leader, how does the engineering team build trust with the business?
2: That's a great question. Um, there, there's so many things there um, that, that an engineering team needs to do to build trust with the rest of the business. Um, engineers have a bit of a, a reputation of, of sometimes being curmudgeonly and kind of hard to work with, easy to get nose out of. And I think that's one of the biggest things that's, that's a no-no. If you want to build trust with the rest of the organization, you kind of have to, to shift into this posture of being as collaborative as possible. You know, after all, the engineering organization is there to support the goals of the business and to build the things that the business needs to be successful. Um, so when the business is asking for something from engineering, you kind of have to look for ways to say yes, not reasons to say no. Because um, it's a lot easier to say no, right? It's a lot easier just to go, nope, we're already committed to this. We we don't have any bandwidth to do this. No. But it's a lot more productive to try to figure out why the request is being made, where it fits with the rest of your priorities. Is there a part of it that you can support with with the the team that you have available with the the time that you have available to build something on top of your existing commitments? That builds trust in in a hurry um, when you're able to be collaborative versus just saying no all the time and, and setting up rules for engagement and that sort of thing. Another one um, is just to communicate, communicate, communicate. Never let the rest of, uh, of the organization be caught by surprise, right? So if you're going to miss a deadline, if you're going to ship a feature less complete than you expected it to, make sure that you've communicated that far enough in advance that anybody else that needs to react to that information has had time to react to it. And make sure it's been received uh, because, you know, the it's really easy to to say something a time or two and expect that everybody who needs to hear it has heard it and that not to be the case. So you kind of have to be on your toes to make sure when when you have information like that to share that you've reached out to the right people to share it with. And then kind of the the last one I would say is, is always be focused on business outcomes, not departmental ones. You know, and this, this is an interesting one because it, it applies to security really well as well. You know, there's a big difference between between saying security says we need SOC 2 to be compliant versus, hey, we're trying to expand sales to larger companies, and they want to be able to see our SOC 2 report. Um, so we want to work with you to help get the business SOC 2 compliant over the next couple quarters. You you get an entirely different response. I've I've had both of those things said to me as an engineering leader. And I know my response was very different to the first one versus the second one, because the second one, it, it says it right there on the 10, why why we're doing it, why we need to go to this effort. And the same thing is true as an, as an engineering leader, the things that we're focused on need to revolve around business outcomes. If, if I want to go and do a big refactoring initiative, let my team rework a big section of our code base. I need to share that information with the rest of the organization in terms that, that makes sense where it addresses business value.
1: Well said. It's a problem that persists and it's good to know that there are people like you at the helm, Nick. I can tell you're a great engineer, uh, a great leader. And I hope that everybody listening, you know, the engineering teams and the security teams take a page from your book because, you know, focusing on the business, we say it all the time, but for saying it all the time, I feel like we rarely do it. So I hope that we can put that into practice. And that wraps up our show today. So Nick, thank you again for joining us at the Business of Security podcast. And uh, any parting words, uh, do you want to let us know where people can find you online? Uh, your contact information if you're if you're
2: comfortable with that? Yeah, absolutely. thanks so much for having me on Josh. it's been a, it's been a fun conversation for sure. Uh, if you want to find out more about sim about uh, how to add access as code to your production infrastructure, um you can check out sim at simops.com, dot com s y m o p s dot com. And uh, you can find me as @inmeans nmeans on Twitter or nmeans at ruby.social on Mastodon.
1: Great. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Business of Security podcast. And we hope that you're going to join us next time. Thank
0: you. Thank you for listening to the Business of Security podcast brought to you by TrustMap. We want to hear from our listeners. If you have a topic you'd like to discuss on the podcast or would like to continue the conversation, please connect with us on Twitter at CyberSec podcast or email us at at trustsds.com. We want to thank Nick Means for being our guest today. Our host was Josh Bruning, cybersecurity solutions engineer with TrustMap. You can connect with Josh on LinkedIn and learn more about TrustMap at trustmap.com. Our show is produced by Dan Rollins with LiveWire Films. You can find Dan on LinkedIn and learn more about LiveWire at livewirefilms.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Business of Security podcast. And that's a wrap.